You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Well, my name is Janet Smith, and I'm a professor of philosophy at the excellent Catholic University, University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. And I'm doing now the sixth of eight series on sexual ethics. I'm covering the Church's teaching and the natural law arguments against contraception. Last time, I reviewed the history of the Church's teaching on contraception. I looked at some of the predictions of what would happen if contraception became widely available in society. I showed that I thought the consequences of contraception in society had been very bad, that contraception is basically the fuel that allows the sexual revolution to rage, and that the consequences of the sexual revolution have been quite disastrous for society. Among them, unwed pregnancy, abortions, and a much higher incidence of divorce that can be quite directly related to contraception. Then I also spoke about contraception as being unnatural, as being a violation of the natural good of fertility. And I talked there about largely how contraceptives were, number one, abortifacients, that they caused early-term abortions, both the pill and also Norplant and Deprovera, and also that contraceptives are very damaging to a woman's physiology, that they have many bad side effects that are unpleasant and unhealthy for a woman. The proportionalists, or those who dissent from the Church's teaching, might say that I have reduced contraception to kind of a physical act that it's the body that I'm talking about, and why couldn't you sacrifice the goods of the body for the sake of a whole? And why isn't it reasonable for a woman to take a contraceptive pill that might do damage to her body as long as she's seeking higher personalist goods? And the fact is, we do allow women to take contraceptives for what are known as therapeutic purposes. Though I'm told by many doctors that they think the pill does not help a woman regulate her fertility cycle, there are those who think that there are different things the pill could do, reduce cysts, etc., that might be beneficial to a woman. Now, this is justifiable, again, under the principle of the double effect. You're seeking a good, and actually you're seeking a procreative good. You're seeking to bring your fertility cycle back to something that could help you get pregnant. You're seeking to regulate your fertility cycle so you'll be back to the normal, healthy situation. In the meantime, you're going to be sacrificing some of the procreative good. You may become temporarily infertile during this time. But all of that is in service of fertility, and all of it is in service of procreation. So what you're saying is that we're willing to tolerate this evil of reduced fertility or infertility while we're pursuing fertility. So you can sacrifice, in a certain sense, the procreative good, but only in service of the procreative good. Sacrificing the procreative good for the unitive good doesn't work. If only because we really think that you're not actually achieving the unitive good at the same time. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Now I am going to talk about contraception as a violation of the procreative good. This is very important to see that the Church talks about procreation and not reproduction. Again, cats and dogs reproduce, but human beings procreate. This goes along with the other points I have up here under the procreative good, that we're talking about procreation, not reproduction. We're talking about the intrinsic worth of human life, and we are talking about the special act of creation argument, as I'll put it. Again, what's important to remember is that when a male and a female come together in the act of sexual intercourse, they are not simply bringing into existence another member of the species. But you see that the human person, as we said, has an intrinsic worth, has an immortal soul. It has a soul that's going to be with God for an eternity. And when you think about this, it's very important that the sperm you see does not have an immortal soul. It's going to live a very short life. The egg does not have an immortal soul. And unless it links up with a sperm, it's going to have a very short life. But if a sperm meets an egg, you get a new human being which actually has an immortal life. It doesn't die. It's going to exist forever. And as one of my friends said, when a new human being comes into existence, you actually change the universe because you brought into existence something that didn't exist before that is going to exist forever. Think about this. So where did it come from? The sperm doesn't have an immortal soul. The egg doesn't have an immortal soul. But when they get together, you have an immortal soul. 
clearly you need the intervention of another party. And that other party is God himself. God creates the new human soul and puts it into the human body that we provide. We are procreators. We help God create, right? We provide him with the matter. He provides the soul. Now, this is very important that there's not a bunch of souls out there that are sort of, you know, hovering in a holding pattern, looking for a body to inhabit. But that God himself creates a new human life, a new human soul, when the sperm meets the egg. Out of nothing, just like he created the whole universe out of nothing. First there was nothing, there was God and nothing else, and then there was God and the rest of the universe. God brought the world into existence out of nothing. God performs a new act of creation, brings something into existence out of nothing when he brings a new human soul into existence. That's an awesome thought, and it's really worth holding on to. So when a couple is having sex, you see, they're now, when they're having sex, especially during the fertile period, they are more or less coming together on what I would like to call sacred ground, ground on which God could create a new human life by infusing this human soul. Now, those who are contracepting, you see, are trying to shut God out of the place where he belongs. He created that fertile period for him to bring forth new human life. And when couples are contracepting, they're saying, we want to unite physically during this time, but we don't want to allow God to perform his creative act. So this real rejection, if you will, of God and a rejection of new human life that comes with contraception. We want to have sex, but we don't want to have babies. And we're willing to act against our fertility. We're willing to do something against our fertility in order to prohibit a new human life from coming into existence. There's another aspect you want to see of it, and I'm going to get a little theological here that God is a loving God and a creative God. That's what he does. If you want to know what God does, what does God do, right? God loves, right? And God creates. He overflows. His goodness overflows into creation. And he wants there to be lots of human souls. That's why he created the whole universe. This is one of the huge differences between the modern world and the Catholic Church. We could see at Cairo, you had the UN coming face to face, nose to nose with John Paul II. And the UN is saying that each and every baby that comes into this world is now a threat. It's a threat to this population. It's a, another sort of straw on the population bomb fire, right? It's a new little environmental hazard, right? Every baby is considered to be sort of a burden on the environment. Whereas John Paul II sees every baby that's born into this world as God's creation, that God wants that baby to be here, and he wants that baby to be with him for an eternity. And that baby is for us a gift. God gives us a gift, and actually we give it back to God. God wants babies. He made the whole world. We're not polluters, all right? We may be polluters, but we're not polluters by our nature. We're, we're meant to be here. The whole world exists for us. We need to respect it. It's, God made this world, and he wants us to respect it. But it's made for us, and it's made for us to get to heaven. I mean, after all, Scripture does say, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And this is what we're talking about that God wants there to be babies. As a matter of fact, he gives women their most potent sexual desires during the time of their period when they're fertile. Again, this is where the pill reduces that desire for women. But God has made women most desirous of sexual intercourse during the time that they're fertile. He wants there to be babies. So couples need to understand that when they are contracepting, they're shutting life out and they're shutting God out of the sacred space that he has made for new human life. One more indication that our society thinks that new human life is a burden. Most women who tell you, those women who have three or more children, that people have been insulting to them. That when they take the children to the grocery store, in the elevator, in the doctor's office, people say, lady, are these all yours? Don't you and your husband know how to control yourself? When are you guys going to stop? As if there's something irresponsible and self-indulgent about having children. But that's the current sense of our culture. Whereas John Paul II, we saw some in our considerations of love and responsibility, he thinks that having children, in a sense, is what the sexual relationship, one of the things at which the sexual relationship is ordained. And that you have to have this in mind all the time, that babies could come forth from this act. And this is his major contribution to our understanding of the wrongness of contraception, is that he tells us that contraception is not only a violation of the procreative meaning of the sexual act, but it's also a violation of the unitive meaning of the sexual act. 
Now, there's several ways in which this is true. One is, he, as we've talked before, is he thinks that the whole purpose of a person is to be self-giving. That's what we're here for. Much in which God is. I mean, we're made in God's image. God is a loving, giving, creative God. We're made in his image, and we're supposed to be loving and creative and giving individuals. And the way in which we're to give ourselves most profoundly and most creatively is in the act of sexual intercourse. It's in this act in which we can be like God by bringing new human life into existence, which is one of the greatest things that God does and one of the greatest things that we can do. And that's profoundly unitive, to give totally of yourself. And if you're contracepting, you're withholding that fertility. Again, you're not giving something that belongs in this act. You, as a matter of fact, are withholding something. You're, again, you're not accepting everything that your beloved has to offer. You're saying, I want you, but not your fertility. And you're saying, I want to give myself, but I don't want to give my fertility. So there's a reduction in the unitive meaning of the sexual act when it is contraceptive. You can see this with young people. I worked in a pregnancy help center in South Bend, Indiana, and you would have these young girls come in who had been sexually active. And they might be pregnant. And you say, well, didn't you use a contraceptive? They say, no. And we say, why not? And they say, because I wanted to give myself completely to him. I wanted to prove to him that I really loved him, unlike the other guys, all right? I'm willing to have sex with the other guys, but with him, I'm willing to have babies. So I wanted to show that I had a special feeling for him. Obviously, they're being very irresponsible, but they're on to some deep truth. And I often tell my students this. If someone comes up to you and says to you, I want to have sex with you, you know, don't be too flattered, right? Because we can all drop a long list of people it might be fun to have sex with. But if someone comes up to you and says, I want to have a baby with you, then you should fall over. If this person is at all responsible, if this person is at all responsible, says, I want to have a baby with you, I want to be the parent to your children, I want to be the father to your children, I want to be the mother to your children, that's an incredible thing to say. Right? It means I want to bring another you into the world. You know, I like your eyes, I like the way you walk, I like your laugh. I want someone like you, I want to be a part of bringing someone like you into the world. And I'm going to be there for midnight feedings, and I'm going to be there for breakfast, and I'm going to be there for PTAs, and I'm going to help plan for weddings, and I'm in it for the long haul. This is where the procreative meaning and the unitive meaning become intertwined. We noticed in Humanae Vitae last time, it spoke about there being an unbreakable connection between the procreative and the unitive meaning of the sexual act. That there are two sides of the same coin. They're like convex and concave. Procreative and unitive, they're the same. If you say, I want to have a baby with you, you're saying, I want to unite with you. Right? And if you're really uniting, you should be open to having a baby. This is something that fits in this act. And it means an immensely different thing to say, I want to have sex with you, or I want to have a baby with you. What our society has done is it has split these two things. It says, I want to have sex with you, and I want to have babies with you. These are two different things. Having babies, again, we're kind of surprised when you get pregnant through an act of sexual intercourse. We actually call it an accident. I got pregnant by accident. As if, again, it's not an absolutely natural part of this act. This is important to see this connection between contraception and abortion. In fact, the Supreme Court makes this connection. In the decision of Planned Parenthood versus Casey of a couple summers ago, there's a line that goes very close to this. It says, in certain significant respects, the decision to use contraception and the decision to have an abortion are the same. And then it goes on to explain. It says, for two decades, couples have based their intimate relationships on the availability of abortion should contraceptives fail. Now, what they're saying there is that we need abortion because we have contraception, because people are having sexual relationships with no anticipation of a baby. And when a pregnancy happens, they think of it as an accident, they think of it as a burden, they think of it as an imposition, and they have to trot off and have an abortion because they weren't prepared for a baby. What natural law says, what the church says, what John Paul II says, is if you're having sex, you should be prepared for two things. You should be prepared for bonding, and you should be prepared for babies. It shouldn't come as an unpleasant surprise that you are attached to this person with whom you're having sex and that you might well become pregnant, or you might get a woman pregnant who is having sex. That this is the important thing to see, that this union and bonding and sex are all a package deal, and we can't separate them. We can say, I'd like to think that having sex and having babies are two different things. That's what our culture says. We want to separate these two things, but we can't. We want to separate having sex from getting attached to a person. We want to be able to have responsibility-free sex, commitment-free sex, but we can't. We find ourselves attached, we find ourselves having babies, because that's the very nature of the act itself. 
Now, as I close this segment on contraception, I do want to say that I think most couples who are using contraception are what we would call subjectively innocent, okay? I think they're doing something objectively wrong, that they're doing something harmful to the woman's body, they're doing something harmful to the relationship with the spouses, they're doing something negative to a person's relationship with God. But I would say most of them don't know this. Most of them haven't given it a moment's thought. Most of them haven't received a moment's instruction on this issue. So they haven't thought about it. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know that, they may even, they probably, very probably, think they're doing something good. They're doing something responsible. They're contracepting, that's a good thing. We don't want to have babies, I'm helping myself not have babies. But I still think they're doing something wrong, even if they think they're doing something good. And it's somewhat like if you put some poison in your orange juice every morning. If you drink a little bit of it every morning, eventually it will catch up with you. And it will diminish a relationship that should be just expanding all the time. The love for a married couple should always be growing and expanding. And if you're using contraception, it seems to me you're pulling back and you're diminishing a relationship that should change and grow in a loving way. Now I'm going to move to natural family planning and how it differs from contraception. I would just like to say that those who switch from contraception to natural family planning talk about it as if it's an entirely different thing, that there is no similarity between contraception and natural family planning. And they will say that they find their relationships greatly enhanced by using natural family planning. And I'll try to explain why as I go along here. But first again, I would like to give you some texts that might be useful for you should you want to pursue this further. One is by a woman named Nona Aguilar, No Pill, No Risk Birth Control, published in 1980. I find this book particularly interesting because it has all sorts of anecdotes or stories of couples who have used contraception and couples who have used natural family planning and the effect it's had on their marriage. There's very few scientific studies that have been done on the effect of natural family planning on a marriage, but the anecdotal evidence overwhelmingly suggests that it's very positive. A how-to book is by John and Sheila Kipley. The Kipleys run the Couple to Couple League, which is an international organization where married couples teach other married couples how to use natural family planning. They use the simple symptothermal method. There are several methods for natural family planning. There's the Billings method, there's the Creighton model, there's the symptothermal method, there's the ovulation method. There's several methods. They're all good. I'll let the experts fight out which one is best. But the Kipley's method is available throughout the United States, and it's one I recommend people could get this book and almost teach themselves, so it's best to take classes. Then I'm referring to my text, Why Himani Vite Was Right, a reader because there's several good essays in there that explain the difference between contraception and natural family planning. What I'm going to do first is to simply give a description of how NFP works and talk somewhat about the different methods and also talk about the effectiveness of natural family planning. Let me mention something about effectiveness. Most people think it's ineffective because if you find people who teach natural family planning, they generally have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten children. You think, oh my gosh, it's not working. Look at this. And they will claim, oh, no, no, these children are planned. We wanted each and every one of these children. The method works very well. And the evidence is overwhelming that natural family planning works well. Those of you who are skeptical should consult the British Medical Journal of September 18th, 1993. September 18th, 1993, the British Medical Journal, an article written by Dr. Dwyer, D-W-Y-E-R. And he's reviewed all of the literature on natural family planning. Not all of it, but the most recent and most sophisticated. Many of the studies were done by the World Health Organization. And he discovers that natural family planning is every bit as effective as the most effective form of contraception. Every bit as effective. He cites one study that was done in Calcutta of some, I think it's 19,845 women the vast majority of whom are Muslims and Hindus. I think only 21% or so were Christians. And of this 19,000-plus women, they had what they call a virtual zero pregnancy rate. Almost no one got pregnant. Theoretically, NFP has a failure rate of 0.004, <laughs> which you must admit is virtually zero. And in practice, if couples are well-instructed and well-motivated, it has nearly the same. Now, since I'm a philosopher, I like to look at the simple logic of the situation. The logic of the situation is this. Couples using natural family planning 
are doing their best not to have sexual intercourse when they're fertile. And you can only get pregnant if you're having sexual intercourse when you're fertile. So if you're not having sexual intercourse when you're fertile, you're likely not to get pregnant. Couples who are using contraception are trying to have intercourse when they're fertile, but not be fertile, right? But if you're having sexual intercourse during the fertile period, which couples who are contracepting are doing, it may well fail. The hormone dosage in your body might not be just right, your diaphragm might not be in place just right, your spermicide might not be applied so well today, the condom might slip. And if you're having sexual intercourse during the fertile period, you may well get pregnant. It explains why in use, in practice, contraception has a fairly bad record. Whereas natural family planning has a fairly good record, both theoretically and in practice. So many couples, their first line of resistance against natural family planning is that it's ineffective. The point is it's not ineffective. It's extremely effective, and it's as effective, again, as the most effective form of contraception. Now, before we look at the moral differences between natural family planning and contraception, let's get a sense of what natural family planning is. This is a chart of a woman's menstrual cycle. And what's very important to know is that a woman ovulates only once a month, and the ovum, the egg, lives in her body for only 24 hours, and it can be fertilized for only 12 of those 24 hours. It's kind of remarkable. 24 hours it lives can be fertilized only for 12 hours of those 24. So you think, how can women get pregnant at all? She has to have sex during that 12-hour period or she won't get pregnant. Well, you see, there's another person involved. There's this male person involved. And the male sperm can live three to five days in a woman's body. So if she has sexual intercourse on, say, Sunday, but ovulates on Thursday, she may get pregnant from the act of sexual intercourse that she had on Sunday. And if she has sexual intercourse on Friday, she may get pregnant, even though she ovulated on Thursday, may get pregnant because of the sexual intercourse she had on Friday. So she has sexual intercourse Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, she could get pregnant. Even though she's fertile, only 12 hours, the ovum's only fertilizable for 12 hours, because of that hardy male sperm, she can get pregnant any one of those days. Now, if a woman were perfectly regular, which almost no woman is, if she had a 28-day cycle, she would ovulate on day 14. That's how the old rhythm method calculated things. Natural family planning is not rhythm. The rhythm method was the calendar method. And I only give the days up here for just a sort of picture. NFP works for a woman who has a 21-day cycle and works for a woman who has a 36-day, a 65-day cycle. All right, it's not dependent on counting days. But I'm just using these days to give us a kind of sense of how much abstinence is required and what are the real mechanisms of natural family planning. So let's say a woman has a 28-day cycle. And let's say she ovulated on day 14. She could get pregnant from sexual intercourse during any one of those five days before ovulation. Or she could get pregnant 24 hours after ovulation. You don't know which in those 24 hours, 12 hours is, where it can be fertilized. She cannot get pregnant the rest of the month. She cannot get pregnant during the first nine days of this month. It can't be done because there is no ovum there to be fertilized. She cannot get pregnant for the remaining 12, 13 days of the month. She has ovulated. She will not ovulate again until her next period starts. So these are the periods of time. This is the infertile period, and this is the infertile period, and this is the fertile period. So you have really six, seven days of a month when a woman can get pregnant. Now, the challenge of natural family planning is to try to figure out which seven days of the month are the seven days in which she can get pregnant. Now, there are certain signs that a woman's body demonstrates that indicates that she is entering the fertile period. You see, a woman secretes a certain kind of mucus, I've mentioned this before, that helps the sperm get to the egg. And she starts to secrete that mucus about five days before she ovulates. It's very interesting. God wants a woman to get pregnant. So he has her body secrete the kind of mucus that will help the sperm get to the ovum. When she's ovulated, about 24, 48 hours later, she stops secreting that kind of mucus. It's no longer necessary. The egg is dead. If it's not fertilized, it's not there anymore. So she can't get pregnant. She doesn't need that kind of mucus anymore. She doesn't secrete it anymore. So if a woman can learn how to determine what that mucus is, she can determine when she has entered the fertile phase and when she has exited from the fertile phase. There are at least two other bodily signs that help her determine when she's ovulated. A woman's body temperature rises after she ovulates and stays high for the rest of the month. 
So once she observes this temperature rise and notices that it stayed a couple days, it's not just a fever or something else, that she's actually entered the post-ovulatory phase, she will then know that she has ovulated and she can resume sexual relations without any anticipation of a pregnancy. There's also certain changes in a woman's cervix that she can note that will tell her when she has entered and when she has exited from the fertile period. Now, the Billings tell me, John and Lynn Billings, doctors John and Lynn Billings, who are the doctors who discovered natural family planning from Australia, they tell me that their experience shows that some 93% of women can learn how to read their bodily signs with one month of practice, one month. Other women, it takes three to four months to learn where they are in their cycle. Some women, their mucus isn't that clear. Some women have very irregular cycles. Some women have temperature changes, allergies or whatever that will fool with the mucus and fool with the temperature. But a woman can start to learn how her body works and what her signs are. What needs to be noted here, let's say that this is day one of her menstrual cycle. Her period lasts some three to five days. Most methods will say you shouldn't have sexual intercourse during that time because you might be having a very short cycle that would make you ovulate early and if there's sperm left in your body, again, it might meet up with that ovum. So most people would say that you ought to abstain during your menstrual period. Then there will be probably four to five days between that and when you start your fertile period, in which time you could have sexual intercourse. It's generally advised that you have sexual intercourse just every other day because the residual semen in a woman's body can mask mucus and seem like the mucus. So there will be two or three days in this nine-day period before your fertile phase in which you can have sexual intercourse without anticipation of a pregnancy. Then you will abstain for however long you think you're in this fertile phase, which can go anywhere from the minimum it's going to be is seven days. It could be longer because you're not certain whether you're really in the fertile phase. It could be longer because you're not really certain that you have exited the fertile phase. But once you're certain that you've exited the fertile phase, which is usually meaning there's 12 days left for the month, those 12 days you can have sexual intercourse without any anticipation of a pregnancy. So this is the mere nuts and bolts of the menstrual cycle. Again, we can see that it's altogether governed, NFP is altogether governed by a woman's body. Nothing unhealthy about this for a woman. Her body is no drugs, no synthetic hormones, no nasty little devices in her body. Everything for natural family planning is geared around the natural fertility cycle of the female. Now, this is very important. We noticed before what our first objection, our first objection against contraception, it was extremely negative towards a woman, extremely negative towards her fertility, causing significant physical hardships for a female. Whereas natural family planning means in a certain sense her sexual cycle, her menstrual cycle dictates in a certain sense the sexual shots of the relationship. A man must learn to respect the way that a woman's body works. We'll take a pause for a moment, and then I will be describing how this differs morally from contraception and how natural family planning is helpful to a marriage and not harmful. In this segment, we're continuing our discussion of natural family planning, both how it works and how it differs morally from contraception. In the last segment, I described how natural family planning works, what are the different methods, a very brief introduction, and just a basic theory behind the process. One additional element I want to point out is that, again, most women don't have month after month a 28-day cycle. Women's cycles can go from really as few as about 19 days to 65 or forever, especially if she's nursing or entering the uh, last phases of her menstrual life. But if a woman's cycle is irregular, it's really this phase that is either lengthened or shortened, the day between the day that she starts her period and the day that she ovulates. But again, this can be as short as about seven days and as long as almost forever. In either one of these periods could be the period that is lengthened, the time between she, her period starts and when she enters the fertile phase or the time from when she enters the fertile phase and when she ovulates. This is usually just five days, but if a woman is under particular stress, this period might get very long. She might start noticing fertile mucus, and she thinks, okay, well, five days from now I should ovulate, but she does not notice any change that would suggest that she has ovulated. She keeps showing the fertile mucus and the fertile mucus, and there's no temperature change, there's no other bodily change that would suggest. There's no end to this. And a doctor explained to me the other day is that actually the body, when it's very, very stressed, 
doesn't want to get pregnant. <laughs> Says this woman's under enough stress already. We don't need to put her under the stress of pregnancy. And so it stalls, right? It stalls in what is known as the fertile phase. She's not fertile, okay? She's not ovulating, but she's stuck in this fertile phase. So it might be that this phase, the infertile phase is very long, or it could be that the fertile phase is very long. But once she ovulates, whether this has been seven days or it's been 65 days, once she ovulates, and notice that she ovulates for almost every woman, this period is the same between when she ovulates and when she starts her next period, which is almost always 12 days. It varies maybe between 10 to 14 days, but 12 is, is very much the average length of time. So natural family planning works for any woman, whether she is fertile or infertile, whether she's nursing or not nursing, whether she's regular or irregular, it will tell her where she is in her cycle. This also can be used as a terrific diagnostic tool to help women determine why they're infertile. I had a doctor the other day show me several charts, and he said after looking at a woman's charts for about three to five months, he can tell if her problem is endometriosis, if her problem is cysts, if her problem is an excess or a deficiency of one of the reproductive hormones. The kinds of irregularity that a woman have is caused by different kinds of physiological problems, and it's a great diagnostic tool. So gynecologists have told me that they love it when a woman comes in with her charting because they can now see what her problem might be if she is having a problem with fertility. One of the most important things to know about natural family planning is it is a method that can both help you not get pregnant and it can help you to get pregnant. It really is for family planning. It's not simply for reduction or limitation of family size. It can also be to help you have a baby when you do in fact want to have a baby. Now many claim that there's really no moral difference between contraception and natural family planning. That couples who are using contraception and who are using natural family planning are doing the same thing. All right, they both intend to have sex without having babies. One of the objections to NFP being the same as contraception to that respect is that both couples are trying to have sexual intercourse and not to have babies. So I say, what's the difference whether you use contraception, use natural family planning? You're both trying to have baby-free sex. Another objection is that some consider both methods to be unnatural. They say certainly it's unnatural to take a pill or to use a condom, but also it's unnatural to chart and to confine your acts of sexual intercourse to the infertile period. They say it's just as unnatural. Now I'm going to respond to both objections, but I'm going to take a kind of a roundabout route to get there. And I first want to make the claim that the church does not say that couples have to have as many babies as they possibly can. Natural law doesn't say that. Nothing really says that. I've never seen anybody say that you have a moral obligation to have as many babies as your body can bear. As a matter of fact, we all know that sometimes it's the responsible thing for a couple to do to not have any children at a particular time. You might take two couples who have exactly the same situation. Let's say they have three children under five, the husband is financially stressed and the woman is understandably fatigued and they say, you know, it really wouldn't be a good idea for us to have any more children right now. If you don't think those are good reasons, you can add some. You can say that she's very sick or whatever you want to do. But I think those are good reasons. So one couple decides to use contraception and another couple decides to use natural family planning. And I want to say that one couple has chosen to do something immoral to achieve a good end, whereas another couple has done something moral to achieve a good end. Because you need to have not only your ends be, your goals be moral, but you have to have moral means to a moral end. You might have the same thing that you have two individuals who want to support their families. That's a good end, right? Joe and Bill, they both want to support their families. But Joe goes out and robs a bank, whereas Bill gets a job. You want to say they're both doing good things. They're both supporting their family. The bank robber has done something immoral to achieve his end, and the man who got the job does something moral to achieve his end. So I've been arguing that contraception is something immoral. It's a bad means, possibly to a good end. Again, just to review quickly, I think that contraception hurts a woman's body and her self-esteem and her self-concept. I think it is damaging to a sexual relationship. A couple are not totally giving to each other. I think it enters a negativity into a person's relationship with God. And I think it has disastrous social consequences. My claim is that natural family planning does none of those things. It's respectful of a woman's body. I'm going to argue that it enhances a marital relationship. I'm going to say that it's very respectful to God and that it is without harmful social consequences and, as a matter of fact, has good social consequences. So 
one important distinction to make in respect to this first objection that contracepting couples and NFP couples have the same purpose, you say yes, they do have the same purpose. They both do want to have sex without having babies. That desire in itself is not wrong. It's the means or method by which they go about achieving their ends that determines whether what they're doing is moral or immoral. Another parallel or example that might be used, and this I think is a very good one as well, that you could have two individuals who want to lose weight. We might have Jane and Susan who both want to lose weight. Now Jane eats. She eats a full chocolate cake and a full box of donuts, but then she vomits. She has bulimia. Now she's achieving her goal of not gaining weight or even of losing weight, but she's doing it through an unhealthy and I would say immoral means. Now Susan also wants to lose weight. Susan denies herself chocolate cake. She denies herself donuts. She has the same end, but she's doing something moral, a means of self-denial in order to gain her goal of not gaining weight. I think a parallel can be made here between these two actions and contraception. The contraceptors want to engage in a fertile act of sexual intercourse. They want the pleasures that come with sexual intercourse, just like Jane wants the pleasures that come with food but she doesn't want the consequences. She doesn't want the consequence of gaining weight. So she both tries to engage in an act of eating and disengage in act of eating. And a couple who's using contraception are trying to engage in an act of fertile intercourse while making that act be an infertile act of sexual intercourse. John Paul II would even call this lying. He said, you're lying with your body. Your body is saying, I'm ready for babies. And you're saying, I'm not ready for babies. And a lie is when you say something that's false. You say two things at the same time. One thing that means this, but you're also trying to indicate that it means something else. And that's the kind of lie that contraceptive sex is. It's saying we want to engage in a fertile act of sexual intercourse, but we don't want that act of sexual intercourse to be fertile. Whereas the couple who's using natural family planning, much like Susan, is saying no chocolate cake for me today, thank you. No donuts for me today, thank you. I'm not prepared for the consequences that come with chocolate cake. I'm not prepared for the consequences that come with donuts. So I'm going to abstain. I'm going to stand back from this. I'm not trying to destroy donuts. I'm not just trying to violate chocolate cake. I'm just standing back. I'm respecting these as good things. It's just there's a good thing that it's not good for me to participate in at this moment. So again, you have two individuals with the same end, but one is trying to participate in a good and thwart that good, violate that good, while the other one is saying, I'm going to abstain completely from that good because there are other goods that I don't want to pursue. So again, my claim is they might have the same purpose, but the method that they use in order to achieve their goal or their ends are very different. Now, the statement that both are unnatural, again, I've already made abundant explanations, I think, about why contraception is unnatural. Again, it takes a very healthy state, a woman's fertility, and makes her infertile. It renders her unhealthy when she should be healthy. Now, what's unnatural, again, about natural family planning? Is it really unnatural to abstain during the fertile period? Is it unnatural to chart? Is it, would it be unnatural for me to chart my caloric intake to see how many calories I have a day? Is it unnatural for me to chart how much fat grams there are in my foods? Well, see, you know, that's very natural. It's very intelligent. You're using your human intelligence. That's a good thing in order to achieve a natural end, which is health. I want to be thinner, that's a healthy thing. I'm going to use an intelligent way of getting at it, one that doesn't destroy my body. I'm not going to eat and throw up at the same time. I'm not going to take damaging appetite suppressants. I am going to refrain from eating things that would make me gain weight. I'm going to chart my cholesterol and chart my fat grams. So that's a very intelligent thing to do, it's very natural. You're working in accord with nature. You know what these things are naturally. You know that they're not good for you at this time. Not that they're not good at other times, but for you at this moment, they're not good. So you're not going to partake in them. It's totally natural for me to abstain from food, even though I might really want that food, even though it might make me very happy, even though it might even make the people around me happy if I eat the food. If you go to a party and you don't eat the birthday cake, everybody's kind of a little deflated. Everybody eat the birthday cake. And you say, I'm sorry, I'm dieting. Well, you all have to be self-denying at this point. You're denying yourself a certain pleasure because there's a certain good that you don't want. That's very natural. That's a very intelligent and a good way of going about it. People say, well, abstention isn't natural. Well, is that true? There's all sorts of reasons why people abstain within marriage. There's all sorts of reasons why they abstain. Someone might be sick. The husband might be sick. The wife might be sick. It's natural to abstain. 
someone might have a headache. Someone might be out of town, right? You're going to abstain as long as your spouse is out of town, we hope, right? You might be abstaining because you're angry with each other, right? There's all sorts of reasons why a couple might abstain. Well, isn't abstaining for the purposes of limiting your family size also a good reason for abstaining? Couldn't you say the reason we're abstaining is because it wouldn't be a good idea for us to have a baby right now? You say, well, that's natural. That's intelligent. That's denying yourself a good, the good of sex at this time, because you're not prepared for another good, which is the good of babies. So I want to claim it's perfectly natural. Now, many of those who are resistant to the notion of using natural family planning are resistant because they think the abstention is going to be too difficult. I think it's going to be damaging to the spontaneity of the sexual intercourse within marriage. Now, I found that those who are most resistant to natural family planning are those who have had sex before marriage and who have contraceptive. And they think this is going to be an undue hardship on their marriage. As a matter of fact, I think I find that women most often more than men are feeling this way, but they feel this way because of their husbands. They think their husbands are going to get irritable and withdrawn and hard to live with if they're not available sexually when their husbands want them to be. And they're a little bit afraid that this might be, again, damaging for the relationship. Where we discover that we don't really love each other, is it really sex that makes this relationship run? What the heck are we going to do during that absent period when we want to express our affection for each other, when we want to show our love for each other? What are we going to do if we're angry? How are we going to make up if we're using uh, natural family planning and we want to make up during a time when we should be abstaining? Well, one thing that's important to note is that most couples, almost every couple, who has been chased before marriage, couples who have not had sexual intercourse before marriage, they have very little problem with natural family planning. They have very little problem with the abstaining. Everybody has some problem with it. If you want to have sex, you want to have sex. You can't have it, you have a problem with it. But those who have abstained before marriage have learned how to deal with their passions in a way that's respectful to the other person and to the goods, again, of sexuality and marriage. The reason that couples don't have sex before marriage, especially in this day and age, is not because they don't have the opportunity, not because people will disapprove of them, not because they can't do it, in a certain sense, in a pregnancy-free way, right? But they don't have sex before marriage precisely because they love each other, precisely because they say, I love you so much, you're worth waiting for. We've got other things to accomplish during this time of courtship. We've got other things that we need to be concerned with. And so they abstain during this period, and then they find that they know how to show their affection to each other without becoming sexually aroused, and they import that same behavior into the marriage. And so when the time for abstention comes, they return to what they call the courtship phase. They return to engaging in expression of affection and being with each other in a way that is similar to the way that they did when they were courting. They are not afraid of this period of abstinence. Now, couples who have been sexually active before marriage, who have contracepted, who have been contracepting into their marriage, who are afraid of this abstinence period, they generally need to learn new ways of relating with each other. They need to learn how to show affection without becoming sexually aroused. They need to know how to affirm each other during this time that just because they're not having sex doesn't mean they don't love each other. And they need to learn new ways of communicating. Now, this is one of the ways in which natural family planning, again, can enhance a marriage. It's very important to realize that couples who are using natural family planning generally talk about it as being something that adds something, not something that takes away from their marriage, right? Again, they have this confidence that they're not only there in the marriage as sexual partners for each other. Couples who have been contracepting, who've been unchaste before marriage, sometimes they're surprised to learn how much they enjoy each other even when they're not having sex, that they do in fact love each other and they're not only in this relationship for the sexual availability. But they talk often about mutuality and respect. Couples who are using natural family planning say that you know, neither one of us is taking the reproductive management burden in this relationship. We both have to abstain. We both get to have sex and we both have to abstain. It's not the woman who's taking the brunt of whatever difficulties there are. Again, it's difficult for a woman to abstain during her fertile period. That's when she most wants to have sex. So there's a burden on her and a burden on the male because he generally wants to have sex too. So they are both refraining. She respects him because he has such self-control and because he's not asking her to take damaging drugs in order to control her fertility. He respects her because he understands, again, that this fertility is a very great thing, and he doesn't want her to take these damaging things so that they might have sex together. So couples who are using natural family planning generally have a great deal of mutual respect. 
you're a good person. You're willing to deny yourself some pleasures so that our relationship and our family can be good and healthy. They all talk about better communication. This is very important. They talk about how they can communicate about important things more regularly and more deeply than many of them say they did when they were contracepting. Many people using natural family planning are formal contraceptive users. And they say it really has enhanced their ability to talk to each other. And one way it does is that they talk more about their fertility and they talk more about why they're having children and why they're not having children. And that's a very important discussion for a couple to have. Why aren't we having children right now? Are those reasons selfish reasons or are they good reasons? They talk often about that they will be in a fertile phase and they'll say, you know, they both want to have sex. And they, it provokes this conversation. Why are we abstaining, right? And one might say, well, we're abstaining because we don't have enough money for another child. You're very financial stressed, the wife might say to the husband. And he might say to her, well, I was financially stressed yesterday, but today I'm not, okay? I was a little worried about whether I'd be able to support the family, but I'm going to get some raises. We're going to move forward, and we can do it. Let's just go ahead and take the risk. Or he might say, of course I'm financially stressed. You don't. You spend money like crazy. Everything new comes out, you have to have one. Your friend Jane gets new dishes, you need new dishes. And she might say to him, well, I don't need those new dishes, right? Or he might say to her, the reason we're abstaining is because you're too tired. You said you can't handle any more children right now. You're run ragged. And she might say, oh, I'm not so tired anymore. The baby is now a toddler, and we might think of another baby around here. Or she might say, of course I'm too tired. You never help. You said you'd help with the dishes. You said you'd help with the baths. You don't do that. He might say, I'm ready to help. Tomorrow, I'll give him the baths, right? But the point is they're talking. And the point is they're talking about extremely important things, about who's doing what in the relationship and why they are or are not having babies. And this is an extremely important part of their relationship. They also have a very different attitude towards pregnancy. Again, whereas those who contracept often talk about a pregnancy as being an accident, okay, a burden, they get angry. They're pregnant, they weren't supposed to get pregnant. They use contraceptives, they get pregnant, it's not their fault. Again, that's why abortion becomes a thinkable thing. Couples using natural family planning virtually never get abortions. Because when they get pregnant, they say, oh well, yeah, we know if you have sex, you might get pregnant. Even though we were trying to have sex during the infertile time, I guess we misjudged, but we were having sex. And we know that sex can bring with it babies. Babies are very much in their mind. Babies and sex go together. Baby sex, baby, they, they're abstaining because of, of the possibility of a baby, or they're engaging in sexual intercourse because of a baby. So they very much have this anticipation that if a pregnancy happens, it's their responsibility, right? They understand the connection. Very different attitude towards pregnancy. It's also important to see that they have a very low divorce rate a very low divorce rate. Some people say it's under 4% for those who are using natural family planning. For the rest of the culture, again, it's 50%. You might say, oh, well, it's only fanatical Catholics, again, who use natural family planning, and they're not going to get divorced because they don't believe in it, so it's not a very good study. I don't know that I believe that at all. It seems to me that many people who stand up at the altar intend never to get divorced. Most people who stand there want never to get divorced. They don't believe in divorce, and they find themselves some five, seven, ten years later getting divorced. But it seems to me that natural family planning really helps people have a long-lasting marriage. When I tell this to my students, they sit up. Again, as I mentioned before, they hate divorce. And they say, anything that will help us not get divorced, we want to think about it. We want it as an option. And again, I think it's for all these reasons that couples using natural family planning are very much thinking about the whole of their relationship. Sex doesn't loom large. Not to mention, again, that it's very important for their relationship with God. Most of them feel the awesomeness of God there in their fertility. During this fertile phase, again, they think of this as God's time, and they very much have an awareness that God is there and God may be wanting to send them a baby, and that they should be very respectful of God, and they should not tread on what they consider to be sacred ground unless they're prepared for this intervention by God. So they feel that their whole sexual life is in tune with God and God's plan. It's very important. It very much elevates, as it properly should, the human act to its properly divine, quasi-divine realm. Now, I mentioned I would talk for a moment, it will be only a moment, about the moral reasons for abstaining. Again, obviously, sex is for babies, right? And you say, well, then we should be having babies. But how many babies? 
some people say you should just let them come. You should just let the babies come. And I said, well, we don't feel that way about anything else. We don't feel that way, for instance, about money. We don't say that we should empty out our bank account every month. Everything we have at the end of the month, we should send to Mother Teresa, and God will provide. Almost no one lives that way. There may be those who live that way, but they do it because of a special calling from God, not because we consider that to be the norm. So couples using natural family planning say, well, yeah, there may be times when we want to, when we think it's best, when we think it's best for the family. Again, someone might be very ill. There might be considerable financial difficulties. We might have many other responsibilities to take care of. We might have a handicapped child, or we might have a mother with Alzheimer's or a father with Alzheimer's who takes an enormous amount of care. And you say having another child would present an undue burden for this whole family. And I think the best way to think about it is to think about being selfish or unselfish. Humani Vitae uses several words when it talks about reasons for using natural family planning. It says just reasons, serious reasons, grave reasons. But I think the best way to think about it really is selfish reasons. Are you being selfish or are you being unselfish? Is it because you are giving in different ways? You're giving to the handicapped, you're giving to the elderly, you're giving to the children you already have that makes it difficult for you to give more by having another child? Or do you want to say, we can't give right now, we can't give in that way? Now those who say, I don't want another child because I want uh, a trip to Europe or I want to go scuba diving, maybe they need to think twice about what is more important. But the whole point of natural family planning is that one is working in accord with nature, one is working in accord with God, one is respecting one's body, one is one enhancing relationship with one's husband and with one's family. A very great difference between natural family planning and contraception. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.